Don't forget you can see some images related to what we talk about here on our YouTube channel and the video version of this episode. How on earth did the internet, one of mankind's greatest, most democratized inventions ever, become a place with so much hostility, bile, and lies? Do most people just suck and now we have to hear from them? Or are there just a few loudmouths who know how to game the system to amplify their voices, making an astonishing racket while they throw various tantrums about imagined slights? Today we'll look at some events that help create the tools that help foster an atmosphere in which patently preposterous ideas take root and flourish, all started by a few misogynists, self-serving asshats, and internet trolls who just like breaking things. Elevator gate, Gamergate, and Puppygate, things that started small and then ballooned to Godzilla-sized proportions. Unusually, I'm going to give a note of caution and a trigger warning. There are some pretty disturbing things talked about in here, as you would expect about a misogynistic harassment campaign aimed at women. These are things that actually happened to these women, and we have to look at them in order to understand them and combat them in the future. But if this is just going to be too much for you, I strongly suggest that you skip this episode. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Elevator Gate. Blogger and podcaster Rebecca Watson founded the Skepcheck blog in 2005, back when she was 25 years old, to disseminate her ideas on the new atheism movement, science communications, and modern feminist politics, taking note of how women's voices and a feminist perspective were often missing in the atheism conversation. After being a guest on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, she joined them as a host in 2009. In 2011, she was on a panel at the World Atheist Convention in Dublin, Ireland, where she talked about how she was frequently sexualized, even in the supposedly liberal and open-minded atheist movement, and, well, she didn't like it. After the day's talk, she and a few other people from the panel, and even some from the audience, had drinks at the bar in the hotel. At about 4 or 4.30 in the morning, she decided to call it a night and went to go back to her room. A man who'd been hanging around but not talking with her all evening promptly followed her into the elevator, said she was really interesting, and would she like to go back to his room for a coffee and to talk? She refused, and that was that. 
But later she made a video, which she posted on YouTube, about a number of topics and included in there this incident mentioning how creepy it was about how she was especially uncomfortable in that situation in the close confines of an elevator car. Guys, don't do that, she advised male watchers of the video. In the comments section below the video, people debated as to whether the guy, quote, had actually done something or if she was just being dramatic and overreacting. He was trying to be nice was certainly one of the threads running through some of that comment thread. Other websites picked up this debate, including Reddit, where topics often go to get hypersized. The online discussion soon ranged into the larger issues it pointed to, mainly the oversexualization of women in literally every single field of endeavor that they enter, except maybe child rearing. Was this, in fact, sexual harassment, or did things need to go further than they had in that Irish elevator to deserve that label? Women who said, yes, it was harassment, got called feminazis, prick teases, ingrates, whores, and other nastier terms, and soon people, men, let's face it, started making videos of their own talking about how Watson was totally overreacting because she craved attention. So far, so internet. But then famous biologist and atheist Richard Dawkins, who'd been on the same panel in Dublin with Watson, thought he was being deep when, in what he later said was an attempt to point out how Western women just don't seem to care much about the plight of women in hardline Muslim countries, wrote the following. Dear Muslima, Stop whining, will you? Yes, yes, I know you had your genitals mutilated with a razor blade and yawn, don't tell me yet again. I know you aren't allowed to drive a car and you can't leave the house without a male relative and your husband is allowed to beat you and you'll be stoned to death if you commit adultery. But stop whining, will you? Think of the suffering your poor American sisters have to put up with. Only this week I heard of one. She calls herself Skeptic, and do you know what happened to her? A man in a hotel elevator invited her back to his room for coffee. I'm not exaggerating. He really did. He invited her back to his room for coffee. Of course, she said no, and of course, he didn't lay a finger on her. But even so, and you, Ms. Lima, think you have misogyny to complain about? For goodness sake, grow up, or at least grow a thicker skin, Richard. This sort of masterclass in passive-aggressive behavior didn't go down so well with a lot of people, even those who looked up to Dawkins as a leader of the New Atheism Movement and those who seen him previously as a stalwart ally of feminism. Dawkins did himself no favors by later saying that any woman who says she was raped but had been drinking alcohol should probably not be believed and should certainly not be allowed to testify in court, and he said it's better to be raped by someone you know than by a stranger. Oh, Richard, stop being such a dick. People, of course, came out either for Dawkins or for Watson, and things got nasty real fast, erupting into a full-fledged flame war. Dawkins was called a misogynist who'd infiltrated feminism and only now was showing his true colors, criticized for mansplaining feminism to Muslim women, and he was disinvited from a conference. Things escalated further, and Watson started getting death threats and long rambling screeds from anonymous senders about how she would be raped to death over a long period of time. She revealed all this publicly in a blog post titled, Mom, Don't Read This. 
In the summer of 2012, a blogger and YouTuber calling himself Thunderfoot, with two zeros as the O's, posted first a blog and later a video reiterating the baseless claim that Watson was overreacting for attention. This got Thunderfoot flamed. The blog host, freethoughtblogs.com, removed him from their site. He responded to this by calling the website admins dishonest and otherwise just whining and complaining. Perhaps he just wanted attention. For his part, in 2014, three years after his poorly thought out Dear Ms. Lima screed, Dawkins offered a sort of wishy-washy apology to, quote, American women, not to Watson herself, mind you, for his Dear Ms. Lima comment. Watson tweeted, quote, Richard Dawkins just did the blog equivalent of coughing into his hand while mumbling, I'm sorry to me. Eh, I'll take it. However, the angries have been inflamed by the flame war and a whole discussion board was set up on 4chan called Slime Pit, S-L-Y-M-E-P-I-T, mainly aimed at hating on skeptic and free thought blogs, but also generalizing into how women are just so mean these days and beating up on poor defenseless men online and how feminism has no place in the atheism movement. All through the use of posts and memes that included references to and images of conspiracy theories of all kind, sexual abuse, violence towards women, mutilation, murder, racism, homo and transphobia, and generally acting like the alt-right little boys they are, unable to properly navigate the more grown-up world the internet and social media had exposed them to. The whole mess got dubbed Elevator Gate and went on for at least three whole years, all sparked off by a young woman in her 20s saying in a video that it's not cool to corner strange women in an elevator in a foreign city at 4 o'clock in the morning and invite them back to your room. And while flaming and flame wars have been around since the early days of the internet, yes, on Usenet groups mainly, a new, more tech-savvy group of folks would use the events of Elevatorgate as a template for creating online disruption that spills over into the real world, or IRL, as it's known. I am not a number, I am a free Chan! Yes, that's a reference to the awesome British TV show, The Prisoner. Before moving on, a brief bit about what exactly 4chan is for those who are unfamiliar with it. Back in 1999, an online text board was set up in Japan called 2Channel by internet entrepreneur Hiroyuki Nishimura, whose internet handle is Hiroyuki. He would go on to do other big deal things in the Japanese internet world. FYI, a text board is a Japanese internet product, a simple no-frills forum that you do not need to register on to use or even provide a screen name. So if you wish, it can be completely anonymous. Two Channel soon became the most popular website in Japan with literally 10 million visitors a day and by 2007, two and a half million posts a day. By then, it was the largest site of its kind in the world. However, the Japanese Neto Ayoku which literally means the internet right wing, soon got on there and started flooding the site with defamatory comments, racist posts, usually targeting Koreans, and other web garbage. Soon there were hundreds of lawsuits against 2Channel for allowing this kind of thing. The Tokyo police thought it was also being used to sell drugs, so they got in more trouble. I say they because even though Hiroyuki was the mastermind behind 2Channel, the site was hosted in San Francisco, California by American Jim Watkins, a man we will talk much more about whenever we get around to covering the QAnon conspiracy. And yes, ultimately, this all kind of ties into QAnon. But later, folks, later. 
A new site was created in 2001 for people who wanted to talk about sports and ramen and their lives and pets and other normal things instead of nasty things about liberals and Koreans. Actually called Futaba Channel, but most people simply called it Tuchan. Oh, and lots of chatter on there about Japanese pornography, which is a massive, massive business in that country. 2chan grew into some text boards, but also some image boards where people could post pictures and try their hand at creating what would later be known as internet memes. Anime and other Japanese comic book styles are huge in Japan, needless to say. So another site was spun off of 2chan in 2003 called 4chan, which was just for that. And yet some people, because they knew that 2chan had come from 2channel, referred to it as 4channel just to make things confusing. This one was mainly in English, and so it really took off worldwide. But internet trolls soon found 2chan and then 4chan and started trying to dominate there as well. 4chan grew extremely large, able to accommodate all kinds of niche interests, some nice, some not very nice at all, like a whole bunch of anti-Semitic and neo-Nazi content, for example. In 2013, a fellow named Frederick Brennan, more about him later, created 8chan, or 8channel, as another alternative online space after 4chan started cracking down on the worst of the content showing up there. 8chan was a no-holds-barred-anything-everything-is-allowed place. Needless to say, it soon became a clearinghouse for child pornography, both sincere and ironic, hate crimes, mass shootings, with some shooters live-streaming their kills on 8chan, and really just the worst of humanity. In 2017, it became the source of the so-called Q-drops, which fueled the QAnon conspiracy cult. 8chan was shut down in August 2019, but then was reborn three months later as 8kun. So you got all that? 2channel begets 2chan, which begets 4chan, which begets 8chan, which later rebrands as 8kun. So by the time Gamergate occurs, Elevatorgate has pretty much played out, and 2chan, 4chan, and 8chan are all active. And some of the participants in Elevatorgate are still very much active on these sites and similar ones like Reddit. Gamergate. It all kicks off in 2013, but it sort of goes back to 2012. In that year, media critic Anita Sarkeesian started a Kickstarter campaign to raise funds for a video series to expand her Tropes vs. Women series into the world of computer and online gaming. You may laugh at that until you learn that this industry makes far more money than any other segment of the storytelling entertainment world, earning an estimated $159 billion in 2020, which far surpasses the film industry's biggest year, 2019, which only managed to take in about $100 billion. Sony now makes most of its money purely from their PlayStation consoles and related titles, earning $25 billion in 2020, which is still only a little over 15% of the total revenue that gaming as a whole generated that year. There are even professional gamers who earn over $6 million a year playing video games. For years, the cliché was that gamers were socially maladjusted young males who lived in their parents' basements, survived on a diet of soda pop, Skittles, and Ritz crackers, or the local equivalent, and only exposed their skin to fresh air and sunlight twice a year. And like most clichés, that was wrong. By the time the 2010s come around, there are all kinds of people playing all kinds of games, many of them with at least some online co-play component. This includes older people, 
I myself play video games, and I'm 53. Women, girls, trans people, the whole gamut of society. So, here comes Anita Sarkeesian in 2012, ready to critique the way that females are treated in the gaming world and the gaming industry. She needed $6,000 to get her Tropes vs. Women in Video Games series up, and she had that amount just one day after she launched the Kickstarter program. Within two weeks, she had eight times that. Eventually, she raised $159,000 for the project. Clearly, there's an audience. And this kind of ridiculous overpayment is the sort of thing that gets reported about by news agencies, and pretty soon, she was the target for angry males. A fellow Canadian named Bendlin Spur created a flash game called Beat Up Anita Sarkeesian, a cheapo entertainment, quote-unquote, that showed a picture of her face getting more and more bruised and bloodied the more you clicked your mouse. The description for the game accused her of defrauding people through Kickstarter because she, quote, thinks she can get away with whatever she damn well pleases because she's a woman and, quote, she just wants to use the fact that she was born with a vagina to get free money and sympathy from everyone who crosses her path. And this was before any episode of her new series had come out. When another feminist in Toronto objected to this beat-up game, a supporter of it named Gregory Elliott started behaving badly on Twitter towards this woman and two others, though it did not get him deplatformed. Twitter found no violation in their terms of service at the time, even though he blatantly threatened this woman in Toronto. However, it did get him in court in November 2012. After something of a zoo of a trial, all charges against Elliott were dropped. That is a weird story all on its own. Just Google the Toronto legal case R.V. Elliott, double L, double T. Anyway, Sarkeesian was subjected to an astonishing amount of abuse, threats of bodily harm, and more. But all this harassment had the counter effect of raising her profile, and she was asked to speak at various events. And in 2014, she was to talk and receive an award in San Francisco at the Game Developers Choice Awards. But that event was delayed when someone called in a, thank goodness, fake bomb threat. Later that year, she was scheduled to give a lecture series at the University of Utah, where more bomb threats were called in, which prompted her to cancel the event when it was explained to her that Utah is a permissive open carry state, which means anyone can legally carry a handgun on foot or in a vehicle without needing special permits or licenses to do so. She had received so many graphic death threats before this that she had had to leave her home and was staying at an undisclosed location. All of these later events were concurrent with Gamergate. So here's how Gamergate all started. Independent video game developer and programmer and writer Zoe Quinn released a text-based game called Depression Quest that explored different ways of coping with depression based on some of her own experiences. Critics liked it, but some gamers did not. There's nothing to shoot at. And some people like to confuse the terms social and political. And then there's this criticism about why are all these political games coming out? Why can't we just blow stuff up? Then they, Zoe's preferred pronouns are they, them, and their, broke up with their boyfriend, Aaron Joni. So, on August 15th, 2014, Aaron Joni wrote what is now called the Zoe Post, a short essay complaining about her lying to him and then listing 24 reasons that he hated them. He, of course, uses she and her when talking about Zoe, including that 
Zoe cheated on him with many people, including a reporter for the game website Kotaku named Nathan Grayson in exchange for a positive review for her game Depression Quest. He put this Zoe post on a number of websites like the Something Awful Forum and then promptly got himself banned from all those sites and it was all taken down. So the next day, he takes the time to create a WordPress site and repost it. Much later, he tried to weasel out of the trouble he found himself in by saying that the accusations of infidelity, and specifically with Nathan Grayson, were due to a, quote, typographical error. Many people noted that Grayson had never once reviewed any of Zoe's games, including Depression Quest. Someone, maybe Aaron, also put the post up on 4chan, where many people had already expressed their dislike of this no-shoot-em-up, text-based game that focused on the feels. 4chan users started to pile on, because that seems to be a favorite activity for many of them, and then Aaron disingenuously pretended to condemn those attacks against Zoe, while at the same time continuing to spread the Zoe post on as many websites text boards, blogs, and forums as he possibly could. Then a guy named Matt Jarbo, who goes by the handle Mundane Matt, makes a video in which he claims a previous video he'd made about the Zoe post was taken down by YouTube because of a DMCA takedown notice by Zoe claiming copyright infringement. When others manage to get a hold of the actual filing, it is so poorly worded that it soon becomes clear that neither Zoe nor anyone working for her, like a lawyer, has filed such a claim. The only conclusion people can reach is that mundane Matt did all this himself to gain notoriety and further spread the idea that Zoe is some kind of power-hungry monster. This use of a false DMCA claim will become one of the many tactics used as Gamergate erupts into full bloom. Mundane Matt gathered more trolls and they started hatching a plan to actively go after Zoe in what they called the Quinspiracy on an internet relay chat or RIC hosted on 4chan called Hashtag Burgers and Fries, which tries to hide behind that innocuous name. They considered doxing her and trying to destroy her career. John Bain, known online as Total Biscuit, and a guy named Jim, but who likes to be called Internet Aristocrat, released videos and doxing info on Zoe and those close to Zoe. Zoe Quinn's family, for example, started getting nasty phone calls. For those that don't know, doxing is when someone finds private, identifying information about someone else and publishes it on the internet. Things like private email addresses, phone numbers, usernames, passwords, and even physical home addresses. The goal is to A, make the person being doxxed fearful, and B, maybe, just maybe, someone will do something truly awful to the doxxed person. And gee whiz, wouldn't that be a shame? Matthew Rappard from the Female Forward Video Game Design Contest organizers Fine Young Capitalists then made a false claim on Reddit and 4chan that Zoe had doxxed him and screwed up their contest, and he asks for help from the community in combating this injustice. His claims are untrue, but many take the bait. They dox her, and then a guy falsely claims that she doxed him. This is starting to sound an awful lot like schoolyard, I know you are, but what am I? A whole thread about all this forms on the gaming subreddit, but Reddit ends up taking the whole thing down for breaching their rules. Now the trolls claim Zoe Quinn and Reddit are colluding in censorship. Game development site NeoGAF also defends Zoe, which makes them a target. When Canadian video game designer Philippe Poisson, known as 
Phil Fish, publicly refutes Total Biscuit's attacks on Zoe, he becomes a target for the trolls as well. After failing to penetrate Zoe Quinn's pretty good online security, someone does manage to get a hold of Phil Fish's home folder, and discussions erupt about how they can get into his code and take over all the games he's designed. The harassment is so persistent, he ends up selling his company and leaving the world of video game development altogether, as well as completely jumping off social media. All of this simply because he called Total Biscuit out on his lies. On a 4chan board called Paul, devoted to politically incorrect discussions of politics, Operation Chemo is launched to greatly add funds to the fine young capitalists, run by Mr. Matthew Rappard, who made the false claim that Zoe doxed him. The name Operation Chemo comes from the idea that they are the chemotherapy to attack the online cancer of feminism. Fine young capitalists create a mascot for their attacks, a dour redhead female wearing dumpy clothes, which is supposed to represent feminists, called Vivian James. The wider news space starts to notice, hey, something's going on, when the Daily Dot reports on the doxing of Quinn and Fish. 4chan then starts trying to get rid of the more garbagey posts. This is all just in the first eight days, and yet already some techniques are being used that will poison the waters of the internet for years to come. Spreading spurious claims and outright fabrications across multiple outlets to make it appear that there's a whole group of people complaining when in fact it's just a few. Crying collusion and conspiracy when those claims are removed for policy violations. While on the one side of the coin defending the person under attack while on the other side of the coin continuing to spread disinformation. Creating fake evidence of attempts to shut them down, often poorly executed. Marshalling support by tapping into and focusing larger anti-progressive sentiments, in this case widespread misogyny for personal gratification and notoriety, doxing individuals, hacking, creating dedicated funding sources to further the aims of the inflamed group, and cute naming conventions to make it seem like it's all some kind of a mass movement instead of just a bunch of jerkwads who have problems with women. And remember, all of this starts because a boy and a girl broke up and a boy got angry. And then that boy tapped into an underground reservoir of fear masquerading as anger and hate. The admin of 8chan, Fred Brennan, known as Hot Wheels, he has to use a wheelchair to get around because he was born with brittle bone disease, pops into the hashtag burgers and fries chat using the name copy paste and says Zoe's lawyers have been in contact with him and he thinks everyone in the Quinspiracy should move over to 8chan, which, by the way, he operates. A little opportunistic poaching going on here. Back over on Reddit, a subreddit forums called Kotaku in Action, which will become one of the main places for people involved in Gamergate to meet, complain, and plot, or as they put it, quote, demand reform. Reform of what is unclear? Reform of the gaming industry? In what way? No more female game designers? No more text-based games? No more relationship breakups? Aaron Johnny is loving all the attention, and he manages to hack all of Zoe Quinn's usernames and passwords, which he shares on the drama subreddit, which has become another place for haters and trolls to gather. Media critic Anita Sarkeesian, who we talked about earlier, has finally started her Tropes vs. Women in Video Game series, kicking things off with women as background decoration. The troll army turns its attention to her with harassment aplenty and many, many threats. 
Two guys say they're going to make a whole documentary film about her, provided the community contributes $15,000 a month to their Patreon account. Sarkeesian becomes worried and contacts the FBI, who starts an investigation. Death threats continue, and she is forced to leave her home for an undisclosed location again. Zoe Quinn also has to leave their home because of all the threats. YouTuber John Jafari, handle JonTron, starts an online argument with game developer Tim Schaffer about the latest installment of Tropes vs. Women in video games. The hashtag, hashtag StandWithJonTron starts circulating and bleeds over onto Twitter. Now the gang is on that platform seeking to recruit more to their cause. Years later, John Tron, real name John Jafari, would out himself as an anti-immigrant and a racist, saying that wealthy black people commit more crimes than poor white ones and it was good for Africa to be colonized by white Europeans because the blacks are so inferior. And then actor Adam Baldwin comes up with the hashtag, hashtag Gamergate, and now they have a catchy name to rally around. Baldwin, who played Animal Mother in Full Metal Jacket, and you'll also know from Serenity, Chuck, The Last Ship, and much, much more, claims he has shed his former liberal ways and is now a small government libertarian. Now armed with this catchy, marketable slogan, the trolls begin seriously frothing out of their mouths. More videos are made, mainly by internet aristocrat, and Twitter is besieged with calls to arms from game gators. The hashtag really takes off. In September and October 2014, more than 2 million tweets featured the Gamergate hashtag, with 25% of the users using it new to the Twitter platform, which means that they joined just to spread the hashtag. Later, it would be found out that many of these new accounts were sock puppets, multiple fake profiles being run by just a handful of people, or sometimes just one, to make it appear like there's broad support when really it's just a few jerkwads who found a way to game the system and amplify their voices. Mark Cernovich, an activist for what he calls men's rights, but really that's just a front for his deep misogyny and racism, gets in on the action. Using the name Based Lawyer, he makes fun of Anita Sarkeesian for being afraid. He begins to attract other aggrieved, supposedly straight white males who just cannot believe that their society will no longer give them a free pass for any and all behavior and attitudes, and these people will become the kernel of what later becomes known as the alt-right. In addition to accusing anyone he doesn't like of being a pedophile, he spread the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. Cernovich has become a big figure in the manosphere world. He's a former speaker on being a pickup artist, a self-proclaimed advocate of men's rights and enemy of feminist indoctrination, used to give advice on his blog about how to choke women during sex, and has said date rape does not exist. With gems like this tweet, quote, a whore will let her friend ruin your life with a false rape case. So why should I care when women are raped? Well, he would say that since he was arrested and charged with rape in 2003, though he got the charges knocked down to misdemeanor battery. He's one of the spreaders of the term cuck as an insult derived from cuckold, the suggestion being that the cuck in question has been emasculated by feminism. He's also a Trumper and was part of a small group that falsely accused director James Gunn, director of the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, of being a pedophile after the filmmaker criticized Donald Trump, which got Gunn temporarily fired from helming the picture. Oh, and he also believes that whenever someone writes or says the word diversity, what they really mean is white genocide. I know it's not relevant, but it is a little bit funny that he also has a lisp.
When the Game Gators discover that British engineer Mark Threedingham had messaged Zoe Quinn to support them, he gets dubbed a white knight, a term they use for hetero men who defend women who are being harassed or made fun of. Memes are created about Mark Threadingham as the nodding man, a man who nods supportively while a woman complains about whatever the hell it is she feels like complaining about. Gamergate kicks off what they call Operation Disrespectful Nod, a nod to the nodding man meme they created. This is an email campaign to try and get funding pulled or blocked from any publications that say anything mean about Gamergate. And all of this is just the last two weeks in August 2014. Things sure move fast on the internet. In just that brief span of time, what started as an angry ex-boyfriend turned into a huge movement, I guess if you want to call it that, encompassing everything from anger at women for daring to want to be treated fairly, to homophobes and racists, and eventually, yes, neo-Nazis becoming part of the mix. Gamergate becomes a flood delta for all sorts of imagined grievances of the sector of society that has, let's be honest, called the shots for, uh, well, centuries. This mindset becomes known as the Red Pill Right, a reference to the movie The Matrix, where taking the blue pill lets you remain in ignorance, while taking the red pill wakes you up to a life-changing truth. And the truth, the truth of the red, of the red pill, pill has, has woken them, woken them up, up to is that... Is that, that. Well, it varies depending on their particular event, but it often involves a number of unfounded conspiracy theories. The whole thing spans years and lays the foundation of a number of problems of our time, internet-wise. Going into this kind of detail for that whole mess would take five episodes or more, and frankly, it's hard enough for me to be in this headspace as long as I am. But we can take a quick look at some of the major developments that have occurred, the echoes of which still resound today. Gators on 4chan started supporting, both abstractly and financially, projects for games made by females. This was done mainly to reduce Zoe Quinn's influence in the video game world, and on the surface it appears genuine. Pretty soon Gators are supporting what come to be known as spite charities. They fund suicide hotlines, women's rights groups, and anti-bullying initiatives, all while also telling women that they target that they should kill themselves and pushing a male-first agenda, downgrading and insulting women and their careers, and taking the art of bullying to new heights, accelerated by the web, social media, and internet places like Reddit and The Chans. Another thing the Gators would do is if someone like Zoe Quinn were organizing an event, they would organize a counter-event and then mock Quinn's own efforts, claiming that their event represented something of value, while Zoe's was purely self-serving. Gators began ramping up the rhetoric, depicting feminists as angry creatures unable to find a man, and who maybe even were plotting to enslave our males, or maybe even eliminate them entirely from the planet. Drawings of these evil creatures, often directly used imagery, lifted from anti-Semitic propaganda, only slightly tweaked. Pressure was put on advertisers and event organizers and development companies and anyone else the Gators thought they could pressure into being on their side. They painted themselves as being the reasonable ones, fair and balanced, if you will, who only seek justice and equity. And if you criticize what they say or their odious methods, they would point to all their fake good works and pull the healthy debate card out. Don't we have to have an open and fair, healthy debate in an open society? 
Intel was one of several large companies that they targeted with a war plan to go after any advertiser that works with an organization that had publicly supported ethics in gaming, diversity, inclusion, or any of the other terms used by progressives that gators think are coded language for a cultural takeover to eliminate real games and real gamers from the gaming world. To feminize men, and there's a whole steaming stew of, of racial nonsense plopped into there as well. After being the target of a ferocious email swarm, Intel withdrew a planned ad campaign with Gamma Sutra, a gaming industry website, and the publishers of Game Developer Magazine. After their capitulation was criticized, they went ahead with the ad campaign a month later. But just the fact that a giant like Intel actually blinked emboldened many of the gators. Doxing and threats were still very much the norm in the Gamergate world with untold numbers of threats of rape and bodily harm to silence critics. Game developer Brianna Wu of the studio giant Space Cat, with a K, was doxed on 8chan after she mocked Gamergate, forcing her to flee her home and eventually hiring a full-time staff to deal with the sheer volume of death and rape threats. Other critics were swatted. This is when someone calls a report into the police of such seriousness about the target that the police feel a SWAT team needs to be dispatched to that person's home. The hope seems to be that at least the person being SWATed will be seriously inconvenienced and also, hey, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy and sometimes things go sideways and maybe, just maybe, the SWATed target will end up getting injured or even killed. Wouldn't that be funny? Gators weaponized porn using modern image manipulation software to create an early form of deep fake about women they disliked, mapping those women onto footage from pornographic movies, and also just creating some truly, truly tasteless pictures. But as the Gators grew in size, they attracted more powerful people. They used legal channels to go after companies, publications, websites, and even Wikipedia. They cried out, widening the scope of their appeals when Twitter and other platforms decided that some of their content broke the rules. The Gators cast themselves as being on the right side of history, battling for the preservation of freedom from social justice warriors, who they acronym to SJWs, who are really the enemy in their minds. While there is no cohesive idea, the power of modern online technologies has allowed a mass of predominantly cis white men, many of whom I'm sure are incels or involuntarily celibate, and who at least are heterosexual on the surface, push their various grievances. It's not a movement so much as a slime mold. Slime molds used to be categorized as a type of fungus, but now they're considered to be sort of part plant and part animal. They're a collection of small independent bits, really amoeba, that come together from time to time to act as a single organism. This temporary collective can extend arms, move at surprisingly high speed across a forest floor for a collection of tiny critters. The pulsating slime mold can move 3.18 inches a minute or 15 feet an hour, making it the fastest microorganism on Earth. They can engulf and even break down a food source, sharing resources before breaking apart again, and so on. When they are assembled, they seem to have enough intelligence to be able to solve mazes and even appear to be able to learn very rudimentary things. It's even thought that they may be able to store memory, despite the fact that they have no central brain. Sounds like a pretty apt comparison to me. Hashtag slime mold. Hashtag online slime mold.
All of this nonsense wasn't just limited to the gaming world, but spread to other nerd and geek-rich entertainment segments, like what happened in 2015 during the Hugo Awards. Sad puppies aren't much fun. Yes, that is a reference to the Bill Frenzer song, Dead Puppies, which was popularized on the Dr. Demento radio program. The most prestigious award for science fiction writing is the Hugo Award, sort of the Oscars of the SF literary world, named after Hugo Gernsback, who founded the incredibly influential Amazing Stories magazine that helped usher in the golden age of science fiction. The first Hugo Award was in 1953 at the 11th World Science Fiction Convention, which is known as Worldcon, and there's been one every year since. Ursula K. Le Guin was the first woman to win the most prestigious award best novel for The Left Hand of Darkness in 1970. She would go on to win eight Hugos all told in various categories over the years. And yes, obviously there had been some women in the field back in the 70s and 80s. In 1979, three of the four nominees for Best Novel were women, and Andre Norton was nominated back in 1964. The 90s saw more female representation, with Lois McMaster Bujold winning three Best Novel Hugos in that decade, and Connie Willis winning two, so half of all of them in the 90s. Plus, Sherry Tepper, Anne McCaffrey, Maureen McHugh, Nancy Cress, Elizabeth Moon, and Mary Doria Russell all got Best Novel nominations in the 90s as well. Even so, it was still very much a white man's club. And mainly straight, too, though it was an open secret among those who knew him that Arthur C. Clarke was gay, and 11-time nominee, two-time winner Samuel Delaney was both gay and African-American. To be eligible for nomination, a work must have been published or translated into English in the previous calendar year. Nominee votes are cast, and usually the top five make it to the official nominee list. Nominees are ranked by the voters, first, second, third, and so on. But there's an additional optional item for ranking, no award. This is to be used when the voter thinks that none of the nominees below where they ranked no award are deserving of the nomination, Normally, the nomination process runs January to March, with voting happening in a series of rounds, and then the nominees are announced, and then voting takes place April to July, and the winners are announced at Worldcon later that year, usually around September, but not always. It depends on where and when the convention takes place. Over the years, more and more women and people of color received nominations as opportunities increased for formerly marginalized sectors of society to enter into the mainstream science fiction publishing arena. In 2013, Larry Correa, spelled C-O-R-R-E-I-A, he's the son of Portuguese immigrants, who writes a lot of magic and vampire and werewolf type stuff, noticed that his book, Monster Hunter Legion, fourth in the Monster Hunter series, was eligible for a Hugo. And he saw an opportunity, urging fans and supporters to get his book on the ballot. He named this campaign the Sad Puppies Campaign, a reference to an ad for the SPCA featuring Sarah McLaughlin that had puppies being sad and needing a home, and Korea joked that the puppies were actually sad because of, quote, boring message fic winning all the awards. Before becoming a writer, Larry had converted from Catholicism to Mormonism, worked as an accountant, and operated a gun store where he was also a firearms instructor. He is also rather notoriously right-wing and dislikes what he calls the liberalization of U.S. culture, which means more women and blacks and gays and you know the drill. So just a few months before Gamergate kicks off with the Zoe post, he was trying to tap in to disgruntled types who wanted shoot 'em up bang-bang science fiction and not literature about issues that he didn't think were important. 
He was probably thinking of the previous year's best novel winner, among others, by female Joe Walton, about a young woman who grows up with books instead of friends, a mentally ill mother, and a whole bunch of magic in a big battle to save the world from crazed witches. Winners in previous years had also included some women, including Lois McMaster Bujol for her pretty straightforward fantasy book Paladin of Souls, Susanna Clark for the magical adventure Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, Connie Willis for the rip-roar and high-speed time travel adventure double book Blackout All Clear, and J.K. Rowling's fourth Harry Potter novel, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Now, none of these, I think, can be described as, quote, message fic, fic being short for fiction, and nor could any of the books that won or were nominated that were written by men in the previous few years, except maybe Michael Shaban's The Yiddish Policeman's Union, which is an alternate history with a Jewish community set up in Alaska instead of Israel. So, frankly, I don't know what he's talking about. But anyway, he failed to get enough nominations, and Monster Hunter Legion did not get nominated. So, he tried again with the Sand Puppies campaign the next year with his novel Warbound, and was successful in getting an official nomination. He also coordinated with like-minded folks to try and get a whole slate of works that he thought were better than Silly's thoughtful science fiction because they were fun and they were popular. The idea being that they could push all the works that they didn't like off the board entirely if they voted for this slate of choices. He pushed hard and with many blog posts about how big tech and social justice warriors were favoring work that had some kind of namby-pamby message instead of just good old-fashioned and rip-roaring fun. But Anne Leckie's super-complex military space opera Ancillary Justice ended up taking top prize that year, while Warbound got the fewest votes of the five nominees. And now comes 2015. Writer Brad R. Torgensen gets in on the Sad Puppies thing. I mean, he's got a few prestigious nominations under his belt, but he's never managed to get a Hugo win, though he's had two shorter-than-novel-length works nominated. He attributes this also to Hugo's favoring message fiction over popular writing, and he came up with a slate of mainly male writers, though, to be fair, there was a little bit of non-white male representation on the slate as well, probably so that no one could accuse him of being a racist. He announced this Sad Puppy slate on February 1st, 2015. The next day, another voting slate was announced, this one headed by game designer, musician, and writer Theodore Beale, who likes to go by the names Vox Day, Teddy Spaghetti, and sometimes Supreme Dark Lord. He's a far-right activist, white supremacist, anti-Semite, and misogynist who had tried to become president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, the SFWA, back in 2013, but lost to African-American female writer N.K. Jemison. She noted in a speech that Beale won 10% of the vote, which, while certainly not enough to get him to win, is a number that should be alarming to members of the association. She called him, and I quote, a self-described misogynist, racist, anti-Semite, and a few other flavors of asshole. He shot back that she was, and again I quote, an ignorant half-savage, as well as other choice racial insults. Bia was so proud of his verbiage, he put all his nasty comments up on Twitter, which then promptly got him kicked out entirely of the SFWA. So 
Beale thinks the sad puppies is a good idea, but it doesn't go far enough. So he calls his slate of potential nominees the rabid puppies. He cannibalizes the sad puppy slate as well as adding some of his own picks. Then he went out to Gamer Gators. Yes, there's the connection. And got them to join the organization that votes for the Hugos so that they could vote for his nominees. Since far fewer people actually bother to send in nomination ballots than those who vote for the winners, really a few dozen people managed to kind of completely dominate the proceedings. They managed to get 58 of their 67 recommendations on the initial ballots, including two for Beale himself and 11 for a publishing house in Finland that Beale is the lead editor at. Beale continued his various rants online as well as crowing about his success and now how the libs, libs were getting get, get, get owned. Oh. This left a bad taste in a lot of mouths, and at least six people who got nominated through this methodology withdrew their works from consideration. This opened up the field again, and Chinese author Liu Cixin's three-body problem managed to get into the nominees list. When someone withdraws a nomination, the whole list kind of moves up, and so suddenly three-body problem had managed to squeak into the top five. Science fiction master Connie Willis was also scheduled to be the presenter of the Hugos that year, but she said she refused to to do so because Beale and his rabid puppies were so odious and their techniques were undermining the integrity of the Hugos. The creative director for a major science fiction publishing house, Tor Books, Irene Gallo, posted on her Facebook page that the puppies, both sad and rabid, were, quote, unrepentantly racist, misogynist, and homophobic, and that the sad puppies were merely, quote, extreme right wing, but the rabid puppies were, quote, neo-Nazi. To be fair, Beale is totally a neo-Nazi. The puppies continued their press push, getting interviewed a lot now that there was controversy and the mainstream press and their never-ending search for conflict had become interested. They said things like they represented people who are reacting to what they called in their rabid way niche academic overly leftist nominees and winners and, and they were in opposition to what they were calling an affirmative action award. They said the Hugos and other awards in entertainment and literature were now clearly showing a preference for female and non-white writers, and when, oh when, would this persecution of white men stop? Poor white men, no longer totally dominating the field. The puppies really got out the vote, getting hundreds of supporters to buy memberships so they could get their picks to win. Again, keep in mind, not everyone who's on the puppy slates was sympathetic to puppy causes. Sometimes the puppy would add well-regarded works and authors to lend cachet to their slate, and then they could say, see, it's not all right-wing white guys who hate women and homosexuals. The film Guardians of the Galaxy was on their slate for best dramatic presentation, long form, even though that was written and directed by James Gunn, who neo-Nazi and male supremacist Mike Cernovitz had accused of being a pedophile. Writer George R.R. R. Martin, whose books would become the basis of Game of Thrones, called the whole thing Puppygate, which was nice and easy to digest, and so thus Puppygate it was, and there was more press coverage. As a result of all this, there was a record turnout for voting for the winners that year. Almost all of the Puppy Slate nominees were ranked below no award. In fact, no award won 
the best short story, best novella, and best related work categories, so no one got a Hugo for those in 2015. Of the puppy's 58 nominations, only Guardians of the Galaxy won anything. In a little bit of sweet, sweet, poetic justice, Chinese author Liu Cixin's The Three-Body Problem, which had squeaked in because people withdrew, ended up winning Best Award that year. And Ms. Marvel Volume 1, No Normal, a comic book series about a Pakistani teenage superhero named Kamala Khan, won Best Graphic Story. In short, it was a rout, and the puppies were the big losers. The next year, a woman, yes, a woman, named Kate Polk, took over the sad puppies while Beale slash Vox Day ran another rabid puppy slate. This time, they'd win by God. Polk included women of color and lots of other people who are not necessarily white or male, but the rabbits continued to beat the same war drums they had before, getting more and more people to join them in their quest to make science fiction a straight, white, male-dominated action genre. But they also included some diversity in mainstream writers as, as a smokescreen. Remember, the whole tactic is that people should vote for the entire slate as is, thus getting in stealth wins, they thought, for who they really wanted to win, the right-wing white guys. They also tacked on writers who, while not part of the puppy movement, they thought were sort of maybe mentally aligned with them, like John C. Wright, who claims he has no idea why the puppies like him so much, but then he seems to forget his not infrequent homophobic postings on social media. Well, this time the Rabbids got 64 of the 81 picks on the nomination list, with several mainstream picks in there as a cover, and a lot of overlap with the Sad Puppy list. They managed to get all five nominations for Best Novella, four for Best Long-Form Dramatic Presentation, three each for Best Novelette and Best Short Story, and two for Best Fan Writer, as well as other nominations, including Beale himself for his nonfiction book, SJW's Always Lie, Taking Down the Thought Police, written under his Vox Day pseudonym. However, just like in the previous year, quite a few of the people who got nominated but later found out that it was because of puppy influence withdrew their works from consideration thus greatly changing the field. One of the puppy nominees for short story to make it on the puppy list was by Chuck Tingle. This is the pseudonym of a guy who self-publishes on Amazon and writes Gay Monster Erotica. The nominated story was titled Space Raptor Butt Invasion. One can only assume that Beale had not read this story, though the title sort of seems like a dead giveaway. Many think it may have been Beale trolling the libs by putting an obviously gay story on there. I mean... Tingle's other works include My Billionaire Triceratops Craves Gay Ass, Taken by the Gay Unicorn Biker, Pounded by President Bigfoot, Angry Man Pounded by the Fear of His Latent Gayness Over a Dinosaur Transitioning into a Unicorn, and he later would write a book called Slammed in the Butt by my Hugo Award nomination. In the end, it all sort of backfired again on the puppies. Beale's nominated works were all ranked below no award. Hao Jingfang, a female Chinese author based in Beijing, won Best Novelette. Female Nigerian-American writer Nettie Okorafor won for Best Novella. And American female writer Naomi Kritzer won for Best Short Story. Sorry, Chuck Tingle. The winner in two categories was, again, no award. And the top prize, Best Novel, went to N.K. Jemison, the first African-American of any gender to win this award, though Octavia Butler got nominations for short story and novelette back in the 1980s. The winning title was The Fifth Season, the first of her Broken Earth trilogy. 
She would go on to make further Hugo history by winning Best Novel the next two years as well for the follow-up books in that trilogy. Remember, she's the one who beat Beale back in 2013 for the presidency of the SFWA and called him, quote, a self-described misogynist, racist, anti-Semite, and a few other flavors of asshole. So, another defeat for the puppies. 2017, the Hugo Awards made structural changes to their nominating process, and while another woman, Sarah Hoyt, said that she would take over the Sad Puppies campaign, nothing ever came of it, and the Sad Puppies crawled back into the doghouse. Beale slash Vox Day never did another Rabid Puppies campaign, crawling back to the internet and continuing to spread his particular combination of hate. In perhaps the finest example of poetic justice in the whole affair, the next year, 2018, Zoe Quinn's memoir about their experiences during Gamergate, Crash Override, How Gamergate Nearly Destroyed My Life and How We Can Win the Fight Against Online Hate, was nominated for a Hugo in the Best Related Work category. They lost to Ursula K. Le Guin's collection of blogs because, hey, it's Ursula K. Le Guin. So you might argue that the puppy's bark was worse than their bite in the long run. Almost none of the stuff they pushed won anything, and eventually they all gave up to seek easier playgrounds to bully in. Gamergate developed a lot of techniques being used by even more malicious hashtag online slime molds like white supremacists. It can be very likely argued that this all directly contributed to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol building this year. In fact, many key Gamergators figure into the entire lead-up to the events of January 6th, but that'll be another episode someday. The fact that social media companies seem utterly paralyzed, at least until recently, about how to handle the hashtag online slime molds is cause for concern. And plenty of trolls out there are happy to continue to perpetuate ideas from the Gamergate sphere for whatever reasons. For example, a game for PC came out in 2019 called Rape Day, a visual novel in which you can only progress to the next section of the story by raping women. Game platform Steam originally allowed it to be available and then pulled it after pressure from people who aren't complete assholes. Yes, issues of freedom of speech and censorship are certainly mixed up in all of this. Law enforcement and the justice system are also trying to navigate a world that has changed quite rapidly. Where exactly do we draw the line and what are the long-term repercussions of those decisions? Perhaps more dangerous is the normalization of the slime mold model. Actual politicians are now using some of the same techniques used by gamergators, neo-Nazis, and male supremacists and spouting some of the same verbiage and conspiracy theories, all so they can appeal to a certain kind of voting base and maybe gain or hold on to power. And when we see politicians today seeming to want to win at any cost, it is likely they will once again try and mobilize the slime mold if they think it will help their side get power. What's real and what isn't? If a woman who dares to make a video game about depression instead of shooting tentacled aliens gets death threats, are those threats real or not? How is she to know? How is law enforcement to know? If a group of angry men accuse a film director of pedophilia, how is Disney supposed to know if it's true or not? Better pull him from the project just in case, right? And what is it the online slime mold wants exactly? I think they have it right now. They want to shout, 
They want to scream. They want to focus the worries of life into a clear and cohesive narrative instead of the complicated mess that is real life. R.I.L. They get to imagine themselves as somehow both victims and heroes facing an enemy with great resources, but somehow these console jockeys overcome the odds and will prevail. What exactly would winning look like for them? Well, I guess that depends on who they are. Yet none of their win scenarios seem to be feasible. We're not going to suddenly strip away rights for women and non-Caucasians. Well, in some senses, maybe. With the almost constant attempts in the United States to outlaw abortion. But is Gilead from A Handmaid's Tale really a likely future? No, it isn't. And anyone who wants that to come to pass is going to be very greatly disappointed. Same with an all-white or an all-Christian or an all-heterosexual country or world. It's just not going to happen, folks. Will we dial back the clock somehow to 1960 when it comes to how women are treated? How on earth would we do that? Again, it ain't going to happen. The Gamergate story is torturously long and complex. Check the episode note for links if you want to dive into the swamp even further. But frankly, I've had my fill. The tools and techniques, the formation of the online slime mold, hashtag slime mold, will later play into QAnon and other issues facing us today. Gamergate didn't start hatred and harassment, not even in the online world, but it certainly weaponized it. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.